a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, Joe, again, this is Buck Benny speaking. I have my friend John Henderson from This Day in Jack Benny, which is a awesome podcast. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Orson Welles. And uh, this episode is an interesting one in that Orson uh, talks about how he is not for sale. Orson is not for sale. He doesn't like to get out there and do too many sponsor things and and really kind of lays into some folks for featuring him or having kind of his endorsement of their product. Um, and, and I just, this is just so interesting because I'm trying to figure out from Orson's point of view, why he does what he does. Cause Orson always has an agenda with what he's doing. And I mm. feel like after listening to this, it didn't strike me at the time at the first time listening to it, I've listened to it a few times. But I think what he was doing here, because what he does is he kind of thrashes on the sponsor that, that, that threw him in there, that, that, that yeah. featured him without his permission. But he didn't want to alienate their spokesperson, which is Danny Thomas. So he's like, talks about how good Danny Thomas is. And it goes into a whole big, the biggest part of this is how wonderful Danny Thomas is. And Danny Thomas at the time is, this is 1946, he's in New York, he's a, a nightclub performer, but not a lot of people know him. And so this is one of the first times Danny Thomas's name would really get thrown out there by somebody big. And he had no way of knowing, but later on Danny Thomas would have this huge career. But so often that happens with Orson. Um, a few weeks ago, we presented where he's talking about different, um, different composers. And he went through his list of composers and those composers went on to do miraculous things. Um, he had one, one of his composers did worked with Hitchcock and worked well and worked with Orson later on and worked, just did so much amazing work. And he just throws out the name and says, Oh, there's this new guy that, <laughs> and of course you'd never know. We have all these years later, we can look back and go, wow, these wonderful things they did. And of course, Danny Thomas, he has the Danny Thomas show that ran for many years his daughter, Marlo Thomas, was in That Girl and, and went on from there. And he started St. Jude's Hospital and has just done so many things. And to hear Orson talking about and complimenting him and saying what a talent he thinks he thinks Danny Thomas is, is really neat thing to do. When I, when I listened to this episode, I did not know who Dan, Danny Thomas was. Right. And so since then, I watched my first episode of The Danny Thomas Show and I thought it was great. Uh, but I wonder if you know what sort of uh, things he did prior to the Danny Thomas show. Because even in the show, he, he says, oh, I'm an entertainer. I'm a comedian. Yes. Uh, have you ever seen anything like uh, something like his stand up or a one man show? Do you, or have you heard about what he did other than his sitcom? Well, John, speaking of that, you had, that's a great segue. Uh, next week. We're going to present the Danny Thomas show with Andy Griffith on it. And I've already talked with John about that earlier, but here's a new one he didn't know. 
we're going to present the Jack Benny show featuring Danny Thomas on the Jack Benny show. And what Danny Thomas, what happens in that episode is Jack goes to a nightclub to see Danny Thomas perform. Ah. So you get a chance to see Danny Thomas a little bit in his native environment, which it was, he was known for uh, being a comedian in Vegas, being a comedian all over the country that would travel all over the country. Certainly he started out in New York and, and was big in New York, but that is probably his claim to fame as being a stand-up comedian that would just kind of travel the country. And then of course, when TV came along, they were grabbing up anybody who seemed to have some kind of vocal talent who could, who could uh, a great monologist, that sort of thing and saying, Oh, let's make a show around him. And that's what they did with Danny Thomas and the Danny Thomas show. Like um, John is saying, a, a lot of folks haven't seen it that much because there's a number of reasons, but one of them is uh, it was one of those shows that lasted a long time, nine years, I think, but it was sort of, okay, this is about Danny Thomas is the main person and we're going to kind of work out what kind of works. Oh, okay. Our ratings are pretty, Oh, they're sliding a little bit. Let's bring in a different family or let's change this or change that. So I think he had like two different wives in the course of the show that just, yeah. one just disappeared. Another one showed up and the kids, I think sort of changed as they got older, they switched to different cuter, younger kids sort of thing. Um, also, I think the early episodes were on, uh, were, were like live in front of a studio audience. So they are the kinescopes that, that they can't really show on television because they don't look that good. Right. And so what you get, like the, I think the, the DVDs you can buy and things are like, the first one is like season four of, of the Danny Thomas. <laughs> you go, well, where's one through three? And, you know, but I, yeah. And so, so really his nine year run maybe there's three years of stuff you can actually syndicate and things. And that's not usually enough to really get them to push syndication that much. Cause you don't have that many episodes. Usually they like to have five seasons or something before they're really going to syndicate something. Now things like the, uh, the oh, what always bites me with that is the Adams family and the monsters are both two seasons each and yeah. they, they're all over the place, but it just depends on the show. You know, they're like, okay, well this, We'll work with audiences today, and so we'll rerun that. Anyway, that's what that's why we don't know the Danny Thomas show probably as much as we know the I Love Lucy show or things like that. Because I Love Lucy was filmed the whole time, and so they could definitely use all of that for syndication. And, and yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, Danny, um, he would any oh also he was like one of those sort of like a, a, a Georgie Jessel is who he reminds me of because Georgie Jessel you don't get a lot of like a Georgie Jessel show or something. What you get with Georgie Jessel is he's a Toastmaster at, at, at like a Friars Club roast or something, or he appears as a guest star on this person's show or the next person's show. So it's a lot, he was like a comedian's comedian. And that's sort of what Danny Thomas was highly respected in the industry. Um, uh, popular, like I say, across the country with different folks but if you didn't go to nightclubs and things, you probably wouldn't know him that well. So, yeah, that's right. kind of the history of Danny Thomas. Um, the other piece on this episode that I find interesting that I mentioned earlier is the the whole um, the big push he makes for I don't sponsor things and all, all this stuff. And you won't see me backing this product or that product. And, of course, later in his life, 
we have all of his wine commercials for Palmason Winery. Right. And, and I was thinking about this. I'm going, how many of the actual slogans do you remember for products? We remember a lot more than we think we do, yeah. but that we will sell no wine before it's time. I mean, that lived beyond him beyond, after he passed away. People still, if you mention Orson Wells, that's usually what they'll bring up. They'll bring up his wine commercials or they'll even say that line of, we will sell no wine before it's time. Um, other than that, I mean, I, I, as I was thinking through all that, I'm going, okay, what was any other commercial I can remember? And the only ones I can remember are like, where's the beef for Wendy's? And I don't know what else there is. I mean, it, it, yeah. It, and so it just shows the sticking power of that piece. And uh, right now, here, we'll uh, play you a clip from, this is one of his commercials, so that you can hear a Palmasan commercial, and then we'll be back on the other side. So, enjoy. A great deal of time and care go into the production of a fine play, just as they go into the making of a fine wine. Palmasan's Rhine Castle. The taste is smooth, flavorful, delicious. Palmasan wines taste so good because they're made with such care. What Palmasan said nearly a century ago is still true today. We will sell no wine before it's time. And we're back. So the <laughs> I, I hope you enjoyed that commercial. It just gave you a chance to hear that he still was using his resonant voice and everything, and it was so powerful. Um, there's a clip I'll warn you about on YouTube that I that I bumped into. I was talking to John earlier about it. It, it, it's, it just says it's a commercial uh, by Orson. But, and so that's the first one. I, and I think it's the first one that comes up in here in the search because it's the first thing I clicked on. And it's unfortunately Orson, um, I, he was either sick or he was drunk or something was going on because it's, it's him trying to do a Palmasan uh, commercial, but they do take one and he doesn't even respond. He just stares and, they say cut and he's like what and they say it was your line you know and he oh i thought they talked first okay so then they go and do take two and he's slurring his words and he just doesn't sound like our orson wells at all and he sounds completely lost and so they do a tape take three and you just can see you you can't see it but you can feel it the producers director all the people that are there all and the other actors on the set are all like, oh my gosh, how are we going to get something usable out of this mess of what he is right now? And it's so, I mean, if you want to see, unfortunately, the, the Orson kind of drifting away at the end of his life, you can yeah. see that. Personally, after watching, I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't clicked on that. Because then I clicked on one of the other commercials, and they have a ton of other commercials that he does that are beautifully done. And yeah. it's, usually it's just a voiceover that he does. There'll be someone pouring the drink or whatever, and then you'll hear his voice in the background. At Palmasan, we will sell no wine before his time. And it's just, yeah. It's yeah. Well, that is really an infamous clip. It's been around for a while, sort of passed around. And of course, everyone's making, uh, making fun of him and, and things like that. But I find it, like you, very sad because we know Orson Welles from the height of his career that most people have forgotten. Like some people know Citizen Kane, but most people have never actually seen it. Right. Uh, and so the thing that they remember is this point in his life when he's really not at not at the height he's suffered a lot of blows and uh and so to see him struggling through that is 
a little bit sad. Right. Uh, and nobody goes back and watches you know, or listens to shows like this. Like your listeners are a unique group of people who will actually <laughs> seek out like this high quality material from Orson Welles. So I'm glad that we're able to present it here. I'm glad too. I, I, I just think it's great to present him. And as you were saying that, I was thinking, gosh, I can't think of anybody really this. I mean, there's other people. I mean, Edmund Mann's known for his voice and saying things, but, but where if you mention Orson Welles, you'll get a few things. You'll get, uh, we'll sell no wine before it's time. You get Rosebud, right? Yeah. That's the only thing they remember. And, and they might not even be able to tell you anything about Citizen Kane other than they can tell you Rosebud. Right, because right? they saw it on The Simpsons. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> or whatever. Or, you, or um, this is Orson Welles, and which he would say at the beginning of, of virtually everything he did in radio. Um, so that so you've got those. Yeah. What about uh, your obedient servant? Oh, your obedient servant. Yes, yeah. yes. I don't think as many people... Remember that if they're not an Orson fan or whatever, but but yeah, I love that and the fact that he uses that forever more on all his things. And I I have spent 15 years trying to figure out some kind of decent sign off, and I've tried various different things, and, and yeah. I, I have yet to come up with one that you know I wish from day one I would have stuck that landing like he did. Because he, I mean, you go back and you listen to the very earliest stuff and he's still saying, this is Orson Welles. And then at the end, he's going, you're obedient servant. And and I just think that was cool that he came up with that idea and it, and it lasted all throughout his career. And that's awesome. Do you, John, do you have a standard like sign off you do on all your podcasts or anything or a standard opening? I mean, I do the Jello again. This is Jack Benny, this is yeah. Benny speaking and, and people get used to that, but but as far as a sign off, I don't have anything. But do you have anything? I have, I have just a, a sort of format, not really catchphrases. I say hello, friends, at the beginning, oh, yeah. and I'll make a uh, maybe a, a reference to the sponsor of the show at the end, and that's that's about it. Yeah, yeah. You're like me. You don't have a catchy end necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's harder than you think to come up with something like that. I mean, what are you going to yeah. say? Yeah. Uh, I want to mention one more thing from this episode, and I'm curious what your take is on it. He reads this uh, Abraham Lincoln thing, mm -hmm. and it's interesting, but I got to say, it's a little too artsy for me. Like, it may be a above my artistic level. I, yeah. I, what, are your, yeah. what were your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that, that when he does things like, I agree, I, my thoughts are the exact same as yours um, on this one, because his show, uh, I, I was describing uh, earlier on a different podcast you and I did together, um, the... CBS radio workshop and the fact that it's experimental and some episodes make a lot of sense and connect and some episodes don't connect and, and it can get too artsy and all that kind of thing. And Orson does that too within his show. What's nice is usually he doesn't spend a whole show being a kind of artsy or reading something because some of his poems, some of his poems and stories and whatever he's going to read historical literature that he's reading or whatever don't really work for me. But there's always enough things in here that something works, right? Yeah. And, and for me, this whole piece with Danny Thomas was really interesting. The 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 piece where he's reading the Abraham Lincoln piece. Some people, I think, are are going to love that, and that's the kind of stuff they want to hear. Other people are going to go, oh, okay, that's a little, like you say, a little artsy, a little uh, doesn't work for me as well. Uh, but I think that's part of the charm of Orson is that he he's such a broad 
a sort of broad, broad spectrum of things he brings to the table. Um, and I, sometimes I wish I could do more of that, had more, you know, I feel like there's a certain thing that is me and I present that and my viewers and listeners get used to it, what I am. But after a while they go, oh, there's not really anything more to him than that, <laughs> that he presents. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm kind of a different person at home than I am when I'm on the show or whatever, but I just don't have that broad spectrum of background that Orson does. Orson, I, 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 well, I don't think anyone has a broad spectrum that Orson does really. Um, and I just think that's what makes it interesting. And sometimes you got to go, okay, I'll listen. This is all right. And sometimes I'm sure my listeners and you have my total permission listeners to press the fast forward for a few <laughs> and get to the next bit that he's going to do, because of course he's going to do three, four, five things. And maybe one of them doesn't work for you. And so you don't have to sit there and listen to him, read a whole story. If you're not into the story he's reading or whatever. But, uh, well, it's not a long show, so you can uh, you can sit through it. You know, it goes by. Yeah, it's, it's only fourteen minutes. You can put a, well, I'm always amazed with fourteen minutes, and then it's got the the radio commercial for Lear uh, Radios at the beginning and the end. And so I'm like, okay, how long is this thing? It's it's it can't be more than twelve minutes or ten minutes or something. But to think of how do you get? Uh, he just knows his subjects, and he doesn't do what I do, which is a lot of. I don't know. What do you think? You know, and just sort of ponderings. It is his every word is crafted. Moves. Yeah. Yeah. He's got it practiced and ready to go and the whole thing. And my whole thing is spontaneity and sort of thinking on the on the fly. And I think obviously enough listeners like that and viewers like that, that that's a, a good thing. And I think what's cool with John is his approach is different than my approach. And so, I mean, I, there, I know a lot of people that listen to my Jack Benny presentations. Um, Cause you know, I, I end up doing like a couple of them a week and John does one a week. And so you can really, you can, you can listen to mine and John's and you get this kind of interesting uh, piece where they're, his are, are very different than mine. John really zeroes in on the kind of the minutia of what's going on on the show. If, if a product is mentioned or another show is mentioned, he brings that out so that you get a chance to understand what the joke was about and what was going on. And I think that's fantastic. And me, I focus a little more on like uh, Mel Blanc or whoever the actors are that are on the show, or if there's a guest actor on the show or the bits they're doing and talking about the history of the bits. Um, so I just think, I, I think we both bring something interesting to the plate and they're both really different. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. And uh like, I, I love how you can find these rare shows that I've never heard of and with high quality sound recording. Yes. Like, you don't realize how bad some of the sound of old radio shows are out there until you go and listen to one of those and then you come back and you listen to a Buck Benny show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I dig, boy. I try. These, this is one of my proudest things is actually this Orson commentaries because you know, just a few years ago, they were like 12. And now we have access to, I don't know, 60, 70 of them. And you've got to dig to find where they are on the internet. You got to dig and find them. Not very many people have them. They're not in wide circulation at all. And so these are shows that have been lost for 75 years and, and no one's, they been sitting at some university locked away or whatever for a long, long time. And 
uh, for them to, I, I just am so thankful for the folks that did transcribe them and, and did uh, uh, put them on, on digital format and put them out there. And I'm just trying to get them out to even a little bit bigger audience, hopefully through the folks that listen to um, my, my uh, podcast. But uh, I just think it's exciting when one, I can find something in such great sound and two, it's something that has been lost for decades and here we have it. So without further ado, we'll go into, I guess that's my sign off more often than not is without further ado. But anyway, without further ado, <laughs> we will jump into this episode of Orson Welles and uh, get to hear about Danny Thomas and get a chance to, to hear Orson talk about how he sells nothing, although you've heard him just sell wine. And, <laughs> and we go on from there. And it shows something you say earlier in your career can come back to haunt you later in your career. But hey, that's the way it goes. So uh, off you go. Enjoy. This is Orson Welles speaking, and this is the radio program that gives you a radio if you give us a letter we can use. This being a program of opinion, we'd like yours as well as mine. We'll get to that in just a minute. One of these days, you're going to want a fine modern radio set or combination radio phonograph. You'll want it to have all the latest developments in radio. You'll want it to have the name of a manufacturer that has earned a reputation for building good radios. This is why we want you to know about Lear Incorporated and Lear Radios. The name Lear has been on the finest types of radios since 1930. They are aircraft radios, and Lear has become known as the name men fly by. Now Lear is applying that experience in radio design and skill in manufacture to the building of home radios. And as you would expect, they are as fine, as dependable, as high in quality as Lear knows how to make them. They have all the newest developments. One is the Lear tape recorder, an astonishing new way to make recordings. I'll tell you more about that later. We're sure that when you see and hear a Lear radio, you'll say right away, that's the radio I want. Remember the name, Lear, L-E-A-R. And now back to Orson Welles. It just happens I don't endorse things, not in paid advertisements, not for money or publicity or even for the fun of it. Because I'm a columnist, it happens I'm a magazine editor, and because of this radio program, I'm anxious for you to know that my opinion isn't for sale. Therefore, you won't find me on the billboards looking happy about any brand of cigarette, nor has my unlovely likeness been associated with a blended whiskey or a soda pop. With that assurance, you can imagine, then, that it came as something of a shock to me this week to see my name large and black in a lot of big space ads, blurbing, plugging, and plumping for, of all things on Earth, a New York nightclub. Now, there are many things to be said for nightclubs in general and for nightclubs in particular, but I'm not the one to say them. Not so much, shall we say, as that I love nightclubs less, but that I love Earl Wilson more. For those among you who've never watched a floor show from behind a pillar and two busboys and in a howling draft, who've never been moved to pay $17 for a chicken sandwich, let it be known that few, very few nightclubs are truly comfortable or what you might call clubby places to spend a night. La Martinique, a well-publicized basement in the bowels of 57th Street, the nightclub with which my unauthorized recommendation has been recently associated, is not, if you ask me, one of the few exceptions to the rule just cited. Of course, you didn't ask me, but then the proprietors of Martinique didn't ask me either. When they started putting my name in their space ads, they asked for it. 
Well, the gist of the copy is a testimonial to a comedian by the name of Danny Thomas. And right here, I'm going to have to break down and confess that my case against the Martinique and its management is gravely weakened by my admiration for their good taste in hiring Danny Thomas. If I know such a thing when I see it, Danny Thomas is an artist, the authentic article. I've been watching Danny grow as an artist since he first presented himself in a tiny boat in Chicago to that cut-rate clientele which keeps Rush Street fever-flushed with neon after most decent folk have turned out their lights. Danny was pretty good then. He's pretty great now. I've heard him on the radio as Fanny Bryce's postman. You have too. A month ago, I watched him stop the show at the Chaperie, and we've played more Army and Navy camps together than we can count. In the idiom of vaudeville, and speaking for the moment as one of his fellow entertainers who shared the bill with him, I can tell you that Mr. Thomas is well-nigh impossible to follow. And variety, there are two varieties of funny men. There are the gag-slingers, and there are the clowns. I like the clowns. The gag-slingers, I loathe. Joe E. Lewis, Bill Fields, and Jimmy Durante make me feel good all over. They have, I'm sure, lengthened my life. The snappy dressers who tell jokes for their living, and it's a very good living, only serves to remind me of the old wheeze on the sundial. Yes, when the cuff shooter with a diamond ring informs me that a funny thing happened to him on the way to the theater, I think only of the ultimate joke, the gag older and grimmer than any of his. The one that goes, it is later than you think. For me, it's never too late for the clowns, and it never will be. In a troubled world or in a brave new one, there'll always be time for people like Joe and Jimmy and Bill, time for what Bert Williams was, for what Chaplin was, and for what Danny Thomas can be. Now, Danny, like the other Danny, the incomparable Kay, is one of the deliberate buffoons. Like Danny Kay, Danny Thomas is a clown by intention, not by birth. He isn't funny. He has the handicap of having to be funny by trying. But without trying very hard, Danny Thomas is very funny indeed. He has the rare attribute of sincerity and that most priceless thing, a sense of beauty. So look what's happened. The Martinique's publicity man who got me all riled up by publicizing my name to an endorsement I never wrote gets three minutes from me on the radio coast to coast and all for free. Yes, I'm very much afraid that until Danny Thomas gets his own radio show and makes a movie, those among you who go to nightclubs at all and get to New York at all this year are going to have to go to Martinique. But while you're there, don't sign anything without reading the fine print through a microscope. And don't laugh too loudly, or you may end up in a quarter page of a Hearst newspaper. Washington, D.C., Startling evidence has come before the eyes of certain key figures that the uh, growing pro-German, anti-Russian, anti-British propaganda in this country can be traced to the agents of the old Nazi firm of I.J. Farben. Several U.S. senators now advocate that we should stop policing Germany. Senator Wherry wants to start mail service to Germany so that... Germans' friends in this country can send them food packages. Ladies and gentlemen, his resolution to this effect bore the signatures of 34 United States senators. Of course, the senators have been pretty occupied of late. You may remember the bill to establish a permanent Fair Employment Practices Committee, a bill prohibiting discrimination by employers or labor unions because of race, creed, color, or national origin. Well... There isn't going to be any such thing. The senators decided against it. Not all the senators, mind you. Not even a majority of the senators. Just a noisy little club of claghorns. 
They kept talking about something else until their colleagues got so tired of the sound of their voices, their voices, that is, that the whole thing was dropped. That's a joke, son. A very sour joke. Claude Pepper called me up from Washington the other day. He didn't like what I had to say about him last week on the radio. I didn't like saying it. But the senator from Florida is a fully accredited progressive, and he sounded awful like an old-line Southern Democrat when he spoke out against the FEPC. Claude assured me he was against the filibuster, and I told him I'd say so on this program. Claude Pepper was against the filibuster. There, I said it. But Claude Pepper was also against a bill designed to end discrimination. If he wants to say why he was against it, I'd be more than glad to report that. And I hereby extend him the privileges of this program. Senator Pepper had a fine record up to now, and it would be a privilege to help keep that record straight. Well, today's radio goes to Rosemary and Richard Robinson, who live in Passagrill, Florida. They get a five-tube table model made by the Lear people for this letter, which I'm going to read you now, dear Mr. Wells. We are sick to death of men of patent habits, puny, mean with self-interest, which in fact is never truly self-interest, for we must certainly have learned by now our own good is a boomerang, going out and coming back, encircling all men, including their lifetime, their hunger, their weakness, their ignorance. It is time to behave as we pretend we are, generously, with compassion for all mankind and in the interest of all the people. It is time to make war on evil here at home, to unseat the average, the social, political, manager man who is bought with bribes or threats, the sing-song of whiskey, the silky women. It is cheap. Let us feel our disgust. Let us fire volleys of criticism and demand on them. Let us seek men of quality, integrity. Then let them feel the heat of our hope and hear the furious wish in our souls for truth. In reading last evening, we found this poetry by Joseph Auslander, which was new to us. It seems quite able to speak for itself. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is the poem. Abraham Lincoln was ten feet tall. He would straddle the mountains in one stride. The shout of the wind and waterfall would pound at his heart and open it wide. Abraham Lincoln was wilderness-bred. The cliff and the cloud went into his bone. There were blood and tears in the words he said. He wept for the world, and he wept alone. Abraham Lincoln wore a stovepipe hat that brushed the stars down where he walked. His eyes were terrible to look at. His eyes were black pools when he talked. Abraham Lincoln was Judah's lion in anger. In gentleness, Judah's lamb. When he bared his breast to the Lord of Zion, that breast was the breast of Abraham. Abraham Lincoln dropped drops of blood in every battle, in every death. He stood with a sentry in sleet and mud, and the soldier gasped, with Abraham's breath. 
Oh, heart of anguish. Now when our need of pity and peace in a dangerous hour grows desperate. Now when the gospel of greed begets the crimson gospel of power. Now when the cynic corrupts the soul and the bench is bought and we laugh at laws and we barter the gold of the aureole and kill the god and betray the cause, O oh, human heart. Give us faith and fire. Help us believe, though against the fashion, to lift the world to your heart's desire, to heal the world with your heart's compassion. Now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. For just a moment, let me give you a few more details about Lear radios, especially about the new Lear method of recording. This recording is done on tape. It's like the wire recorder, but has many additional advantages. Tape costs less, and as Lear has developed it, the tape does not have to be rewound. As soon as you've made the recording, it may be played back immediately. Tape recording, like wire recording, can be replayed for a lifetime. Yet anything you don't want to keep is wiped off the tape just by recording something else. This sound on tape is just one of the developments you will find in Lear radios. Some have television, some shortwave, FM, and an entirely unique tuning control that lets you choose any station on the dial and adjust the volume without leaving your easy chair across the room. As to price... The finest radio phonograph console combination with television and everything costs about $500. At the other end of the line, there's a good-looking, capable table model at $19.95. Watch for Lear radios at your dealers. When you see them and hear them, you'll agree that you get the most in a radio made by Lear. L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. I've just received a copy of the most startling order issued by any brass hat since VJ Day. This comes from the commanding general at Fort Banks in the harbor defense area of Boston. It was issued on January 18, 1946. Preparatory to a formal inspection the general made that day, and I quote... At all formal inspections by the Harbor Defense Commander or his representative of installation, including officers, shops, etc., all personnel, including civilian employees, will cease work and stand at attention during the inspection. Unquote. This is the first known effort of the Army to apply military discipline to civilians in our days of peace. Let it be the last. Well, friends, I see my time's up. Thanks for letting me come to call. Please join me next time. Till then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.